so two weeks ago I left you guys hanging on the edge of a cliff and I don't apologize for that um, so today we've got a lot to cover we're actually going to make it through two chapters of the Bible okay we've never done that before um, and that's what we would have done last week but the weather got us and let me say real real quickly we hate to cancel we don't like to cancel so if we've canceled it's not just ah we're gonna cancel we don't want to come it's it's for safety and it's for hey it's all right we can regroup and regather and meet again and again not having met sunday and wednesday just felt weird but just so you know we don't do that lightly it's it's usually a day-long conversation (laughs) back and forth and um so just know that so for the sake of reminder let me recap what we saw the last time we were together, which was two weeks ago, through chapter 5 of uh, Esther. If, you, if you're not familiar with who we are and what we're doing right now, we're working through the book of Esther. And we finished chapter 5 two weeks ago. And what happened in chapter 5 was we saw Esther, after three days of fasting, three days and nights of fasting, no food, no water, we see her standing before the court of the king, which was... Not wise to do because the king could have your head chopped off even if you're the queen if you weren't invited. And she was not invited, but she knew that she had to go and petition for her people, the Jews, who a proclamation had been made against by Haman, the enemy of the Jews in our story, that they would be killed, annihilated, destroyed in 11 months. So Mordecai, who is Esther's cousin slash adoptive father told her you've got to go talk to the king and she said I can't do that I haven't been invited and if you show up to the king uninvited get your head chopped off and he said hey who knows whether you came into the kingdom for such a time as this and Esther ended up saying I'll go you fast with all the Jews in Susa which is the capital city of Persia which is the kingdom that they're in you fast three days three nights I and my maidens will do the same and then she made this statement if I perish I perish So after three days and nights of fasting, she shows up to the king's court, not knowing if she's going to live or die. When she shows up, the king, King Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, Xerxes is his Greek name, he invites her in. And not only does he invite her in, he says, what's your request? Whatever it is, I'll give it to you up to half of my kingdom. So hey, this is working out all right, right? So she says, I want you and Haman who had come up with this plot to kill the Jews, I want you and Haman to come to a feast that I have prepared. So the king and Haman show up at Esther's place and they have a feast with her. At the feast, the king asks her again what her request is and she says, I want you and Haman to come to another feast tomorrow and then I'll tell you what I want. So while she's setting up her plea for deliverance for the Jews... How do you think Haman's feeling? Let me tell you a little bit about Haman real quick. Again, if you don't know, he had been elevated. He had a throne of his own in the kingdom. He was basically second in the kingdom to the king himself. He gave him a signet ring. He just said, hey, do whatever you want to. You're the man, Haman. Haman's on top of the world. He just attended a private dinner with the king and the queen, just him and them. And she said, hey, come back tomorrow. I want to do this again. So Haman walks out at the end of chapter 5, and he is on top of the world. 
If you would stand, we're going to read the end of chapter 5 again. And then we're going to work through the text today, kind of a passage at a time like we did chapter 5. And we stand because these are the very words of God. And that is awesome. So this is the end of chapter 5, just as a way of reminder. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet... All this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits, that's seventy-five feet, high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Let me pray. God, give us eyes to see, ears to hear hearts to care and hands to do this word that you're delivering to us today. By the power of your Holy Spirit, speak, be heard, convict, draw near, and heal us, God, by the power of your Spirit and your written and spoken word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, now we come to chapters 6 and 7, which chapter 7 is only 10 verses, and so it's not very long. So we'll work through it a piece at a time. So we see what happened at the end of chapter 5. So here we are. We're going to read verses 1 through 3 of Esther chapter 6, following all this feasting and Haman and gallows and all that. This is what happens. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. So, after feasting and hanging out with Esther and Haman, Xerxes turns in for the night, the king. There's only one problem. He can't sleep. Now, sleep's a funny thing. You can't really control it, can you? I I talk with people all the time at the therapy place who just can't sleep. And let me tell you, it does funny things to you. And try to go to sleep when you can't sleep. It's like, you know, trying to pour water in a sieve. You're like, I just, yeah, go to sleep, go to sleep. I got to go to sleep. I got to go to sleep. I got to sleep. And this is what this guy's going through. You can't control it. Okay? I don't know if Xerxes had issues like this on the regular, but something was keeping him up. We don't know for sure what it was. Maybe he was wondering, wonder what the world Esther wants. Was he wondering maybe if Esther was mad at him? Because he hadn't seen her for 30 days. Any guys ever go to bed and wonder if your wife's mad at you? Kind of hard to sleep, isn't it? Huh? Yeah. Maybe there was something big happening in, in the empire. I don't know. Um, whatever it was, dude just couldn't sleep. So what does he do? (laughs) Either to jog his memory of something that he might have not gotten done, or maybe he's just trying to bore himself silly. 
what does he do? He gives orders to bring the chronicles of memorable deeds to read before him. Nothing like being read to to get you to sleep, is there? I see it every week here, right? I'm reading to you. (laughs) Funny, not funny. Um, Maybe Xerxes should hire a court preacher. Maybe that would work. That would help him sleep. Herb Hodges says that preaching is one man talking in another man's sleep. So, anyway. Anyway, he calls for the book of memorable deeds to be brought, to be read to him. And, and while they're reading this thing, the incident with Mordecai saving his life was found when Mordecai had uncovered the plot by Big Thana and Teresh. Big Thana, I love that Big Thana. Uh, and Mordecai had uncovered this plot that these two guys were going to kill the king. And maybe in an effort to recollect some good deed that the king had done, the king said, hey, what do we do? What do we do to honor this guy? Well, if you remember back when we went through this, it was odd because right after this happened, Haman got promoted. And we're kind of scratching our heads saying, well, what happened? Why, why would Haman get promoted when Mordecai had just done something honorable? And in the providence of God, Mordecai wasn't honored. Now, we're about five years from that incident at this point. Five years And in the providence of God, all of a sudden it's brought back up to the king. Hey, this guy saved your life and you didn't do nothing for him. The night before the second feast of Queen Esther, the guy can't sleep providentially and this deed comes back to his attention. So for five years or so, Mordecai had gone unrewarded for his good deed. And that's just not right, is it? Just unjust, isn't it? Or was it? Verses 4 and 5. And the king said, Who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for. Now this is funny, y'all. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So as we'll see in verse 6, the king wants some feedback on some good ideas how to honor Mordecai. So he asks if anyone is in the court so he can talk to them. Well, it just so happens. Note that providence. It just so happens that Haman had just entered the court, the outer court of the king's palace. Now he had shown up early. He wanted to be first in line. He was so early, the king's still in bed. Okay, I want you to understand how early this is. The king's having the stuff read to him. Huh, what do we ever do to honor that guy? Hey, who's here? Haman's out there. Bring him in. I just see the king in his nightcap and his jammies, footed pajamas. Tell Haman to come in here. I need to talk to him. I need to ask him something. That's how early he came. And he had shown up so that he could talk to the king about his plans to hang Mordecai on the gallows that were apparently already ready. Already. The 75 foot high gallows that had been constructed miraculously overnight. Okay? So the young men say to the king, Haman's there, he's standing in the court. To which the king says, oh, let him come in. Yes, good, that's good. I like what he has to say. Now imagine being Haman. You had maybe the best day of your life yesterday. The gallows to kill your nemesis is built and ready to go. And you're up bright and early to get through the formality of getting the king's approval to hang said nemesis. And immediately upon your arrival, the king says, Hey, come in, come in. I need to talk to you. And you're like, Yep, this is good. 
and he is on top of the world. And then this, verses 6 through 9. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, I've got an idea. For the man whom the king delights to honor, me. Let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. So as soon as Haman walks through the door, the king asks Haman, Hey, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Well, if you're Haman, you're thinking, what? Actually, the Bible tells us exactly what he was thinking, right? He's thinking, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? (laughs) Well, that's surely arrogant, but all signs point in this direction, right? He's second in command of the king. He's already privately dined with the king and queen. And he's got another lunch date with him today. Things have been swinging solidly in his direction for a little while now. So this, this would just be logical for him, for this to be about him, right? So what does he shoot for? Now keep in mind Esther. And note the difference here. The king says, what do you want, Esther? Up to half of my kingdom, I'll give it to you. And Esther says, come and eat with me. What do you want, Esther? Up to half my kingdom, I'll give it to you. Come and eat with me again, then I'll tell you what I want. So now the king says to Haman, what should I do to honor somebody that I want to honor? So what does Haman shoot for? Hmm. Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Now, that may seem a little boring to us. It may seem silly. But the robe, the horse, and the crown of the king were reserved for who? The king. And the king only. History shows that robes of the Persian king were never shared with or loaned to anyone else. The robe was part of the king's identity. And imagine how prized and how special the king's horse would be. Who do you think got to ride the king's horse? The king. And the crown? Who wears the crown? The king. And actually, if you look at the wording, Haman doesn't even suggest the person to be honored wear the crown. It points to the crown being on the horse. That's really what it says. Because he's not that stupid. He's not going to say, put the crown on me, because that would kind of tip his hand, right? Because what's he want? He wants equality with the king. How devilish. Right? And the horse would serve to be a symbol for the king, especially with the crown on its head. In case you were wondering, yes, this is the king's horse. It's got his crown on it. And then it gets poured on thick. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. 
Give the king's stuff to the king's most noble official and let them dress the man being honored and let them lead this guy through the square of the city, the big part of the city, the busy part of the city, and let this high-ranking official proclaim before this honored guy, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Well, I can say this for Haman. He knows how to honor someone, even if it is designed for himself. But, oh, sweet reversal. Verse 10. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry! Take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. I am amazed that the next spirit-inspired words are not, and Haman puked on the spot. Can you imagine? Chest stuck out. He's, he's already got this parade in his mind. He's on the horse. He's in the robe. The crown's there. And with chest stuck out, visions of this thing marching through his mind, the king tells Haman to do what he just said, but to do it for Mordecai. I mean, he really just had to about passed out. I mean, I, really. Imagine his shock and his confusion. I hear Twilight Zone music playing. I see stars and corkscrews in the air around him. A lot of shock, fear, disgust, and confusion on his face. Him shaking his head and saying, What you talking about, Willis? <laughs> Did you say Mordecai? Because the king just told... Haman to hurry to take the robes and the horse as he had said and you Haman you do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate now it's interesting to me too that he calls him Mordecai the Jew here never been identified as that before in the story by anyone outside of Mordecai himself providence The king knows that the Jews are appointed for destruction in a few months. And here, for the first time, Mordecai is identified by someone other than himself as Mordecai the Jew. But back to Haman. He has to take the horse and the robes. He has to dress Mordecai in the robes. He has to lead Mordecai on the appreciation parade through town, proclaiming the honor that the king has bestowed upon Mordecai. Haman had to do that. Not only was this honor not for him but it was for the guy he was approaching the king so early in the morning about crucifying. Now you talk about a dramatic turn of events. You talk about providence. Wow. Five years after this thing happened, reversal. Verse 11. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Rinse, lather, repeat. Lather, rinse, repeat. So Haman did exactly what the king told him to do according to all that the king had told him. Now can you imagine what was going on in his heart and his mind as he proclaimed the honor upon his bitter enemy? That gallows has got to be in his head. He had to be thinking about Mordecai not bowing to him. 
He had to think about rolling dice to determine when Mordecai and his people would die. He had to be thinking about seeing Mordecai there in the gate as he left that first meal with Xerxes and Esther, the gallows and all that hate in his heart. And yet here he was shouting honor for this man through the very heart of town. Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Indeed. (laughs) 12 and 13. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. (laughs) Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Just a few hours, just a few hours after them talking about, Hey, build the gallows, get this done. Now this, the parade's over. Mordecai goes back to his life. He goes back to the king's gate. That's what he does. Probably some back slapping and congratulating going on there. And he's like, oh, shucks, guys, it's nothing. Just saved the king's life and all five years ago. No big deal. Okay, maybe it is a big deal. Check out, you see, I was wearing the robe. I was on his horse. But Haman, well, that's a completely different picture. With Mordecai celebrating and being celebrated, who before had mourned, Now it's Haman hurrying to his house, mourning, and with his head covered. He has been publicly humiliated. And embarrassed is too soft a term to use. He is miserable. And now the conference he has with his wife and his friends today is completely opposite of the one they had with them just a few hours ago. Instead of talking about all the good stuff bestowed upon him, he's talking about all this bad stuff that has happened to him. No gloating or boasting here. This is, oh, woe is me, talk. And the counsel he gets from them is not about Mordecai's doom, but about his own now. If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Ain't no presuppositions of all this working out and being okay. They can foresee, through what's happening, that Haman is doomed, and they make sure he knows it. These miserable comforters, huh? What a bummer. What a day. Just get back in bed, Haman. You know, let's try this again tomorrow. But there's no chance of that because while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. So while he's getting this doom and gloom coming from his people, the entourage from the king arrived to hurry to bring Haman to Esther's second feast. She had prepared it, and it was time for the three of them to feast together and find out what Esther's request was. Can you just imagine Haman's going, what is this going to be? So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther. Again, note that she's called Queen Esther here again. Who's driving the bus? She's driving the bus. This lady is not just self-inflated. She doesn't have somebody else's crown. She's got her own crown. She's the queen, and she's calling the shots and all these happenings. So Queen Esther... And her king and Haman convene. And this is about to get real yucky. On the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. So now the second day here refers to the second day of the second feast. It's not the second day of another feast. It's the second day, second feast. 
So this didn't last two days. This second feast didn't last two days, just so you know that. So what's going on with Haman here? How does he feel? Is he a little more at ease now that he's back in his proper place enjoying this time with the king and queen? I'm not sure. I'm not sure that it matters either because, again, the queen is the main focus here. So after feasting, while drinking their wine, the king asks again for the third time. This guy's not very patient. So for the third time, he's asking her, what do you want? What is your wish, Queen Esther? But he's not mad at her. It shall be granted you, and what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. He addresses his queen, and he again says, What is your wish? What is your request? It shall be granted even half of his kingdom, promising fulfillment. And so again, I wonder, what's Haman thinking? Even more so after 3 and 4. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. Hmm. Wow. What an answer she gives in answer to what her request was. I would guess that she had rehearsed this answer a few times before actually getting to the point where she actually said it. Now let's break it down a little. First, she recognizes verbally the need for the king's approval. Even after him saying he would give her whatever she wanted three times, she says again, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king. Twice she addresses his kingship and seeks his favor and his pleasure. And then this, Let my life be granted for my wish and my people for my request. And this is the meat. This is the main part of the request. Save the life of me and my people. Let me and my people live. That's what I want. And then she goes on to explain. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated, which was the words of the edict, by the way. Now note, she does not directly accuse the king. She doesn't include him in this fear of hers. But she says that they have been sold which refers to the payment that Haman made into the king's treasury when he made his request. Remember, Mordecai even knew the exact amount because it was told. And this selling involved them getting wiped out, destroyed, killed, and annihilated. That's the same, exactly what was said in chapter 3. And then Queen Esther makes a huge statement. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. Now get a hold of that. What does that mean? Esther says that if she and her people were only sold merely as slaves, meaning if they had been only been sold as slaves, it wouldn't trouble her. But since they had been ordered to be killed, well then that's a problem. Now, is it okay? If we're going to be slaves, that's fine, but that's not the problem. She's like, I'd have been okay with that. Now, could you say that? If if you were just going to make me and my people slaves, I'd have been all right with that. But the problem is, you're going to kill us. What's she appealing to? She puts it in terms that the king is going to understand. She puts it in the realm of what's in it for me, for the king. Let me tell you what I'm talking about here. Haman had said that it wasn't profitable for the king to let the Jews live. That was his accusation because they're rebellious and they won't listen to your commands. He said they were rebellious, didn't follow her commands. And now Queen Esther is saying that their death would cost the king. 
She is sharp. She refers to their deaths as the loss of the king. She could have meant a lot of things, I guess, but I would suppose she's saying that the death of the Jews would result in loss of taxation and the loss of the goods and services that the Jews throughout his provinces could provide. It's a profit and loss line for her. And in that light, the king would surely lose. He would lose probably tens of thousands of people. And those people pay taxes, even though Haman says they don't. And all the things that they could make and do, king, your kingdom would lose this stuff and these people and these, this tax money. Talk to the Board of Education about homeschoolers. Huh? You'll lose those dollars. So Esther says, if we were going to live and just be slaves, I wouldn't trouble you. Because then you wouldn't be in a place to lose all this. But since we're going to die, you, king, will lose through our deaths. And here, in this statement, Esther finally identifies with her people, the Jews, even though she doesn't overtly say it. So what do you think Haman's thinking during all this? You ever watch a conversation happen between two people and you're going... You know, and you wonder how they're going to react? Because now all the attention is going to shift directly to him. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Yeah, you reckon so? So naturally, or supernaturally, the king wants to know who has caused this thing to occur. Who is he and where is he? Who has dared to do this? He had no idea that Esther was referring to his and Haman's plans for the Jews. No idea. Who is he? Why, yada, yada. Tell me who has dared to do this. And Esther said, a foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Oh, man. She knows her time is now. She has her finger on the pulse of the king and springs at this point to point the finger at the one whom she had identified as her and her people's enemy. A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. He's the man. He's the one who has worked this plan to kill me and my people. And now we see what's going on with Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. You ever get real scared and can't swallow? Uh-oh. Any favor, any advancement he had accomplished had crumbled around him and now instead of being number two in the kingdom, he's number two. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> oh. Now instead of being number two in the kingdom, he's public enemy number and he had to have been thinking about his wife's words from earlier and about how he would surely fall before Mordecai and his people. And he saw it coming to fruition right before his eyes. From feasting and wine to complete terror. So how does this high-ranking, proud, arrogant man respond? Verse 7. And the king arose in his wrath. <laughs> from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. 
So the storm, uh, the king just storms out in his wrath. I gotta go outside. I get some air. I'm drunk. Well, it goes out in the palace garden, but Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. I guess the king was going out to figure out what in the world he was going to do. Because he's always looked at counselors, right? Now it's him and the queen and this wicked foe and enemy Haman, and he's going to have to make up his mind what he's going to do. But Haman, he stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. Again, what a reversal. Think of Mordecai earlier in sackcloth and ashes mourning his impending doom. And he comes before Esther asking her to save him, her, and their people's lives. Now, Haman doesn't pursue the king to justify anything, but rather he knows who's in power here. And he stays to beg for his life before Queen Esther. He knew he was doomed and that she was the only person on the face of the earth who could save him. Only this time she would not save her petitioner's life. And he clearly saw that the king was going to bring the hammer down on him, so he pleads with Esther to save him. Well, that don't work out real well for him. Verse 8. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's. So, you ever lose your balance? <laughs> Apparently, in the panic that Haman was in, he fell onto the couch that Esther was on. I don't think it was on purpose. I think he fell. And all of a sudden, he falls onto the queen's couch. Let me tell you what, don't nobody hang out on the queen's couch. <laughs> nobody. And who just so happened to walk in while he was falling on the queen's couch? King. Her husband, who was pretty mad at him right now. Just so happened. Providentially, right? The king who was furious when he stormed out, and now the man who planned to kill his queen was falling on her in his sight. And whether it was right or wrong, whether he believed it or not, the king points out that Haman was assaulting his queen in his sight. Was Haman assaulting her? I don't think so. I think he's just frantically seeking to preserve his own life. But it, sure, but it sure could be used to say that Haman's boldness and crimes know no bounds. In my presence, in my own house even, the king says. So as these words leave the king's mouth, those attending the king, they know the drill. King's mad. Bring the head covering. This guy's going to die. So, words leave the king's mouth. They cover Haman's face in execution style and they take him away to kill him. But how are they going to kill him? Well, it just turns out, providentially, I know a way to kill him. First time. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the, uh, on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits, 75 feet high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Wow. So one of these eunuchs is like, Hey, hooded guy here, he built a 75 foot high gallows to kill the guy that saved your life. Why don't you hang him on that? Yes, good idea. It's at Haman's house, which is really crazy, by the way. 
Some people have fl- pink flamingos as lawn decorations. <laughs> Haman's got a 75-foot gallows that he wants to hang his enemy on. There's my enemy in my yard. <laughs> and the king says, hang him on that. And then verse 10 ends Haman's really bad day. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Haman is dead, crucified, impaled on his own gallows, in his own yard, his own house, and the king has satisfied the wrath that he was feeling. And Esther and the Jews, are they safe? We'll find out next week. Okay. But for now, it's application time. What a great story. And it's not, it's, it's, yeah, unless you're Haman. I mean, wow. I know I said wow like six times a day, but seriously, wow. I mean, to watch, you couldn't, and this is history. Let me say this again. These are the very words of God. This is not a story that somebody made up to make the Jews look good, even though the Jews do look good in this. This is history. Esther was a real woman who was really queen of the Persian Empire. Haman was a real man who got hanged on a 75-foot high pole that he got impaled on. This really happened. And we see clearly through it God's providence, God's working. But we see something else. And this is what I want to focus on our application. These two chapters, when seen in light of Haman's meteoric rise and desire to see Mordecai punished to the extent of killing all the people in his bloodline, These two chapters show clearly the end result of a life lived in pride. But what I want to ask you this morning as we look at application, do we really see the far-reaching effects of pride in our lives? Individually and corporately. Do we know how fully we are grasped by the tentacles of pride? Because it's easy to sit here and point fingers at Haman. Do we even really know what pride is? That's what we're going to look at in three application points. DP, not Dr. Pepper, even though that's good application right there. 23 flavors of blessed holiness. It's not holy. DP, we're going to have a description of pride. We're going to see the deception of pride and we're going to see the destruction of pride. So the first one is the description of pride because pride is kind of a slippery word, kind of a slippery subject. It's hard to nail it down. But we need to know what it is if we're going to talk about it and to apply it from what we've seen today. Would you say that Haman was proud? Okay. So then what is pride? Is there a pride that is good and a pride that's bad? Careful. Baker's Encyclopedia of the Bible defines pride this way. A reasonable or justifiable self-respect. That's definition one. Definition two. Improper and excessive self-esteem known as conceit or arrogance. goes on to say this in the definition. The Apostle Paul expresses a positive kind of pride when speaking of confidence in Christians in 2 Corinthians. Or his pride in the strength of the Lord. However, it is the latter sinful meaning of pride which most frequently appears in the Bible, both in the Old and the New Testament. 
The ten Hebrew and the two Greek words for pride generally refer to being high or exalted in attitude. The opposite of the virtue of humility, which is so often praised and rewarded by God. Now one other Greek word refers to a person's being puffed up or inflated with pride or egotism. The idea is that one gives the impression of substance, but is really filled only with air, puffed up. So that's the definition. So, let's look at the beginning of it. It seems that there is a reasonable or justifiable self-respect. We talk about taking pride in the work that we do. Be proud of a job well done. Or maybe even proud of an organization that you're a part of. I really am just, I'm proud to be a part of this group of people. That's Providence Bible Church. Is that bad? No, it's not. We talk about being proud of our kids when they do something good or godly or even successful. And again, is that bad? Not inherently. And we'll see how that gets corrupted in our next application point. But there is a pride that is not bad or wrong in and of itself. I think it's safe to say that. I feel all right saying that. And Baker's Encyclopedia of the Bible said it, so I feel even better about it. But overwhelmingly in the Bible, pride is not only frowned upon, it is openly condemned, even listed as something that God hates. Look at this. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, that's the first thing mentioned, and that's pride. Haughty, arrogant, proud. What is a proud eye? Somebody looks down on everybody else. A lying tongue and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. And if you go back to verse 16, remember these are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. So this is the pride that's most commonly referred to in the Bible. And listen what I just said, God hates it. It is an abomination to God. We're real quick to break out that abomination word in our culture, aren't we? Some things are definitely an abomination. Like pride. So if God hates haughty or proud, puffed up eyes that look down on others, it's clear that pride, in this case, is overtly bad. And what we've seen in Haman, and maybe even Mordecai points, is pride. We've definitely seen it in the king too. We saw in chapter 5 that Haman called his friends and family together to brag about his rank, his stuff, his exclusive dinners with the king and queen, and on and on. And then today he gets excited to tell the king how the king should honor him. He's puffed up and inflated with an ego as big as the empire. So in this picture, as we see it in Haman, pride is a look at me and how great I am and how I can get more of the same for me, myself, and I attitude and a heart condition. That's pride. So the application point for point one is for us to know what pride is. We've got to know what it is. And if we know what it is, then we can avoid it, right? Well, it's not quite so simple because there is the deception of pride. If pride was just a braggadocious, bombastic, hey, I'm awesome mindset... We could spot it and avoid it and call it out in other people fairly easy, I think. But that's just not the case. Here's the deal. Pride creeps into our lives in sneaky ways. 
and oozes in through cracks and crevices that we might not see it in. It can show itself in our religious life, in the good and godly things that we do. Great story that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. He also told this parable, Jesus did, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And here's the story. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And again, when you hear tax collector, you're supposed to go, Ew. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Ew. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, this man, beating his breast, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, on the surface, this Pharisee seems annoying and abrasive, right? I mean, he does to me. He's got the look at me attitude pretty openly. But look what he's proud about. I'm not like other men. Well, that's arrogant. But look at the names of the people that he's not like. They're bad people. Wouldn't you be glad to not be like extortioners, unjust people, adulterers, and IRS agents? I don't want to be like those kind of people. Tax collectors were thieves. They were selfish, greedy thieves. They got the tax that was owed to Rome and whatever else they could extract from people for themselves. And when a Jew thought about a tax collector, they hated them. And so the Pharisees saying, I'm not like an extortioner, I'm not unjust, I'm not an adulterer, and I'm not a tax collector. I, I don't want to be like those people. And so he's saying, I'm glad I'm not like those people. I'm glad I'm not like those people. Right? I mean, come on. I'm not setting you up. Seriously. Do you want to openly say, yeah, I'm like extortioners. I'm like unjust people. Post that on your status. See how many likes you get. I'm like extortioners. Somebody post that today, please. Just see what you get. (laughs) And I'm pretty happy that I don't do what they do. Right? Thankful. I'm glad. It makes me happy. Made him happy. So he prayed to God and said, Thanks, God, that I'm not like these people. And then he goes on to say that he fasts twice a week and that he gives tithes of all that he gets. These are not bad things. These are good things. These are religious things. These are holy things. Things you're probably not doing. But he's doing them. Right? So the sneaky part of pride here is that it creeps in and makes these things performance-based. And then turns to God and says, Okay, look at all the good godly stuff I'm doing. Now count me as righteous because of these things. Luke tells us plainly in the intro to the story that the point of it was to point out people who trusted in themselves for their righteousness. And there's one sneaky part of the pride. 
True righteousness comes only as a gift of grace from God based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. So any good we do is not a basis of our righteousness, but the fruit of it. John Piper would say good deeds are the fruit and not the root of righteousness. Pride makes our righteousness about our performance. Now be careful when I say that. Because you live that way. And so do I. And that's tricky. It's sneaky. Also, this Pharisee did what the other part of the intro condemned, which was described as treating others with contempt. Be careful, church. I'm glad I am like I am, and I'm disgusted by others who aren't like me. In a world where sinners sin, which we looked at several weeks ago, we can be disgusted by these sinners to the point of treating them with contempt, either overtly and openly or secretly in our hearts. This is the sneakiness of pride we have to fight with constantly. I'm better than the guy who cheated on his wife. I'm better than the guy who does drugs. I'm better than the alcoholic. I'm better than the homosexual. They are wrong. They are disgusting. I am right and I'm not disgusting. I would remind you of Paul's words to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Amen! Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Amen! Praise God! I'm not like them, and such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Note the passive form of these verbs that you're seeing on the screen there. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. These things happened to you. You did not accomplish them. They were done to you by the righteous one. So there's no place for pride or boasting. Paul says this clearly in Romans 3, 27-28. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. If then you were saved from your past sins and your former life by God's doing, you have no place for pride in your righteousness and no right to look down on others and treat them with contempt because they aren't like you. And that's a sneaky way that pride slips in on us. Instead of loving people who aren't like us, we treat them with contempt. That is pride and God hates it. One more quick trick of pride, deception of pride. Sometimes pride masks itself as humility or even self-deprecation. What I mean by that is, have you ever been around someone who talks down to themselves or berates themselves and it's their consistent posture? I'm so dumb, I'm ugly, nobody likes me, I don't know why anybody would ever want to be around me. This is pride. 
How so, you might ask? Where's the focus of these thoughts and statements? Me? I? I'm stupid. I'm ugly. I'm a dummy. I'm an idiot. I, 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 me, me, me. These people are as focused on themselves as the Pharisee was in his self-righteousness. Everything and everyone is compared to them, even if it is compared to their badness or their self, bad self-perception. The whiner, the moper, the person who beats themselves up all the time is a victim of a subtle attack of pride. Now, I'm not saying that we should just roll our eyes at these people. We should not. But what they are exhibiting is pride. And we've got to understand that. And listen to me. Watch out for this in your life. And I would say that especially to you younger folks, teens, young adults, oh, well, nobody wants to be with me and I'm... I'm just, you know, I, I get it, I get it. I'm not very fun and I'm, I'm not as pretty as so-and-so. That's pride. Because you're drawing the focus of everybody onto you. Be careful. It's a trap. So the application for us in all this is to watch out for the subtle forms of pride which may slip in. And there are many others. We just don't have time to cover them this morning. So the description of pride, the deception of pride leads to one place, and that's the destruction of pride. We established early in our definition that God hates pride, so how will He respond to it? Well, for Haman, it led him to his own 75-foot high gallows. Now, where will it leave us? And I'm speaking to believers specifically right now. Does that mean we're going to hell if we're proud and arrogant? No, it does not. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But let me tell you what it will do. It will destroy your witness. It will destroy your life right now and you will be miserable. Pride will make you miserable. Pride destroys your fellowship with God. It does not separate you because nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But you're going to be miserable. Pride leads to destruction. So it leads us to the same gallows. It just looks a little different in our lives. And I'm talking to believers right now. I'm getting to you unbelievers in just a little bit. So if we leave pride unchecked, it's going to destroy us. Matthew 23, 12, Jesus says, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So if you are arrogant in your Christianity toward unbelievers or toward believers, toward other churches who don't do things like we do things, be very careful. If you exalt yourself, you will be humbled. That's the words of Christ. James 4, 6 through 10. But He gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. There's the call for the believer with pride in his life. Humble yourself. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Stop laughing and be a little gloomy. Repent. Be sorry for being arrogant. 
after you recognize it, after you understand what it is, and then recognize the subtle ways that it's worked itself into your life. Humble yourself before the Lord and He will exalt you. Anybody want to be exalted? I want to be exalted, y'all. But I don't want to exalt myself, even though I do that. So we are to all of us humble ourselves before God. And this is to be a daily, regular process. The psalmist prayed, Lord, search me and see if there be any hurtful way in me. Be careful praying that because he'll do it. But we should. We should do it. And we don't get humbled one time and expect that to be sufficient. Well, I remember back in uh, 89, I got humbled. And uh, everything's been good since then. That's not the way it works. Coach would have put me in. We'd have won states, no doubt. (laughs) We have to constantly come back to the person and presence of God and see the proper place, see our proper place, and kill any pride that may be in us. That's what it means to always be humbling ourselves before God. Why? So that He can exalt us. Haman wanted to exalt himself, and he got humbled to the point of death. Proverbs 29, 23. One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. The very thing that Haman wanted more than anything else... How shall the king honor the man whom he wishes to honor? Who would the king want to honor more than me? One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. There's one way to honor, and Haman learned that the hard way. May we know it and live it out in submission to the honored one. Now, if we know the Lord, this should be much easier than if we don't. Paul would say... What do you have that you have not received? And if you've received it, why would you boast as if you've done something to earn it? But if you don't know the Lord, if you're an unbeliever here, you have to humble yourself before Him. Assess yourself rightly and know that it is simple pride that would leave you to believe that you can save yourself or that you don't need saving. You are, like all of us, a sinner. And you need the gift of forgiveness given to you, not earning it or deserving it. You cannot obtain God's favor by your deeds. Salvation, being saved, happens when God acts. When God gives you a gift, when you humble yourself before Him and rightly say that you can't save yourself or do any good, much less... Enough good to balance the scales of justice in your favor. Your self-striving and efforts to save yourself are the epitome of pride. And Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So humble yourself in the presence of Almighty God before it is too late because there is an everlasting destruction that is coming upon the enemies of God. The King is coming. And when He comes, He brings salvation to His people and He brings eternal punishment to His enemies. Humble yourself as the enemy of God and let Him exalt you as He gives you the gift of salvation. Let's pray.
God, you do know our frame that we are but dust, every single one of us. And who are we to exalt ourselves? We are the clay, and you are the potter. And you have made of us what you desire to make of us. And the clay has nothing to say. Except you're the potter. God, if there be those who are here this morning that do not know your exalted position in their lives, in their life, I pray that you would convict them and show them their need for a Savior. Show them their pride and their arrogance that they might humble themselves before you as a gift of your grace. Save their souls, God. And for those of us who have been saved by your grace, may we see the sneaky ways that pride has snuck into our lives. May we confess it and forsake it. May we not look down on other people to condemn them out of our arrogance for not being like them. And may we not ever exalt ourselves above anyone else, especially you, God. May we humble ourselves in your presence so that at the proper time you may exalt us. May we be like Jesus who emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And since he did that, God, you have highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let that mind that is in us be evident in our lives. For your glory, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Just stand and receive a benediction. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Stay neat with us if you can.